Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, and tonight I'm here with Ariella Thornhill. Ariella, how's it going? Good. I'm, ex- I'm very excited to talk to Tori later. Likewise, um, for anybody who is tuning in, uh, we're, of course, going to have Toure Reed, uh, author of Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, on in about 30 minutes. Um, so definitely stick around for that. He is going to answer a wide variety of questions from us. Um, but before we get to race reductionism, uh, Ariella, I want to talk to you about class reductionism. Have you, have you ever <laughs> been called a class reductionist? Yeah, and you know, I say this later on in my segment that usually when I'm called a class reductionist, I'm also called white, which is really fun. You know, race is a social construct dependent on whether you're being a class reductionist or not. Right, actually. exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, how about you, Jen? Um, absolutely. I mean, I think so I know for a fact that Jacobin has been called quote white socialism pretty much ever uh-huh. since the beginning. Even when it was just Bhaskar and Ramike, which is objectively hilarious. They're extremely white. They're and... extremely right. <laughs> right? White. <laughs> They're also right. So that was a yeah. bit of a Freudian slip. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it, it is so interesting because, and, and tell me if this is true for you as well. Um, oftentimes the charges of class reductionism or the charges of white socialism are coming from people who are actually white. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, it also seems like there's this kind of subtly bizarre racist angle to the assumption that people of color aren't talking about economic issues or class, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I don't think this is where they're going with it, but there's this long legacy of kind of making out people of color to be too primitive to grasp sort of like high concept economics mm-hmm. or economic rationale. Mm-hmm. Um, and these things, of course, were born out of colonialism, the idea that like some people are natural workers, right? Mm-hmm. And they also apply to certain types of white ethnics. Mm-hmm. But it does play into that in a really uh, kind of cringy way that people should parse out more before they're trying to make these arguments. Because mm-hmm. what I think they're saying, you know, for the most part is um, you, you're failing to sufficiently center race mm-hmm. in this um, argument and race is the most central part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen that not be the case in a bunch of arguments. It's a perfectly fine argument to have. But when you start out with like leveling the class reductionist slur, you're having that argument in bad faith from the Mm -hmm. get go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's another element to the class reductionist charge as well. Um, And I'm thinking here about in 2016 and then, of course, again in 2020 when Lots of people, lots of liberals leveled the class reductionist charge at Bernie Sanders and would say things like, well, you don't talk about race enough. You don't talk about gender enough. Um, And of course, you know, he he did talk about those things, but also the universal programs that were part of his platform, Medicare for all, free uh, public higher education. Like those are issues that relate to race. Those are yeah. about race. Student and debt forgiveness. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you a higher minimum wage. And I think yeah. that you would only not understand those issues as being about race if you were hyper attuned to a certain type of way of talking about race, which mm-hmm. to be quite honest manifests within the professional managerial class. So like the way that the professional managerial class talks about race is not the way that Bernie Sanders talked about race, but that didn't mean he wasn't talking about race. Do you know what I mean? Yep. 
And, you know, when people were criticizing some of these things like universal health care, they're saying it's not centering the experience of racism and discrimination in the healthcare setting. And his platform was, you know, I don't want to endlessly defend all of his platforms, but it was like, we're going to invest in historically black colleges and universities and having doctors from underrepresented backgrounds and so on and so forth. But even so, I know from my own experience and and my family's experience and other people's experiences that racism in medical care is real and is serious. Mm -hmm. We can't change it piecemeal. Mm-hmm. By going up to Kaiser Permanente and being like, can you be unracist? <laughs> right, can right. you do enough training so right. that we're treated with respect? Right. But what we can do is make sure there's no gate to access. And that gate, the insurance gate, disproportionately affects people of color and specifically um, non-English speakers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we can pull everybody into that and then defend that program broadly and reform it broadly Mm -hmm. because we will not win the kind of anti-racist reforms if you know it's hospital by hospital insurance company by insurance company what you will get is like an insurance company or a firm that serves wealthy people of color that's Mm -hmm. really great Mm -hmm. that's that's wonderful about saying oh, here's all the things we're doing to end systemic racism in medicine. We're training our doctors on how conditions look on darker skin, Mm -hmm. which is actually not a thing doctors are trained in. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, if that reform is just happening, you know, on this racialized basis, firm by firm, in the absence of universal programs, you will see class become an even more staunch divide Mm -hmm. um, among people of color and just in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In terms of accessing high quality resources like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I think on that note, um, something that I wanted to talk about uh, uh, for this show is uh, COVID and the way that racial disparities within COVID have kind of played out. Um, So, you know, obviously at this point, um, one aspect of the pandemic that has gotten a lot of attention, of course, is the emergence of these troubling racial disparities uh, in rates of COVID infection, hospitalization, and death. Now, according to groups like the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, the infection rate for Hispanic patients was over three times higher than the rate in white patients, and the rate among black patients was over two times as high. The hospitalization rate for Hispanic patients was more than four times as high as the rate in white patients, and the rate in black patients was over three times as high. Death rates for both groups were over twice as high as the rate for white patients. Asian patients also faced significant disparities in these measures. So clearly there's something going on here. Clearly we can see there are, you know, very noticeable racial disparities. And what's happened is that public health experts and politicians have expressed concerns over these racial disparities and have pledged to address them. Even Trump, when he was in office, um, acknowledged in speeches that African-Americans as a group had been hit especially hard by the pandemic. However, now that we're a year out from when the pandemic began, I think we're also starting to see some of the limits of the racial disparity framework. So scholars like Adolf Reed and Merlin Chowkwanian have been critical from the very beginning of using race as the sole lens for looking at the uneven effects of COVID on the population. So in a recent article, they write, Disparity figures without explanatory context can perpetuate harmful myths and misunderstandings that actually undermine the goal of eliminating health inequities. Such clarifying perspective is required not just for COVID-19, but also for future epidemics. Uh, 
So what they mean here is that race in the context of COVID disparities is largely a proxy for poverty, socioeconomic status, and the segmentation of the labor market. Now, on a group level, Blacks, Latinos, and Native Americans are more likely to have grown up poor, more likely to be low-income as adults, and they're more likely to be frontline workers. We also know that people who have lived in poverty are more likely to have certain health conditions that make them vulnerable to COVID, including high blood, pre- high blood pressure and diabetes. And then, of course, members of these groups, are um, they experience discrimination from medical professionals and others. So that's all well and good. Um, But the problem is that when you use race as a shorthand for all of the above, you really run the risk of performing what Barbara and Karen Fields famously call racecraft. So racecraft, as the fields define it, is a kind of sleight of hand that reinscribes race as a a natural or or self-evident. Um, And the classic example that the fields give to illustrate how this process works is a discussion of children with asthma in the Bronx. So in the early 2000s, a group of researchers uh, looked at rates of asthma among kids living in the South Bronx. The South Bronx, of course, is uh, one of the poorest parts of New York City. It's a neighborhood that gets a lot of heavy truck traffic. Uh, I think it contains like a a waste, uh, several waste treatment plants and a sewage treatment plant. Um, and, and so in other words, it's a very highly polluted area, right? Uh, so kids in the South Bronx, on top of all of that, are also more likely to attend schools that are near highways. So the researchers found that as a result of living in, you know, an area with, with very high levels of air pollution, the kids in the Bronx had high rates of asthma, not very surprising. Um, and, and as the fields put it, It would seem clear as noonday that class inequality had imposed sickness on these American school children. However, when the results of this study were covered by the New York Times, they were written up like this. Dr. A. Hal Strelnick said the borough's high rates of asthma stemmed from a high concentration of traffic in a densely populated area, poorly maintained housing in impoverished neighborhoods, a lack of access to medical care, and a large population of blacks and Hispanics, two groups with high rates of asthma. So in the last line of this formulation, uh, which you know basically says that asthma rates are high in the Bronx because black and Hispanic people live there... Um, In this formulation, asthma stops being something that you get because of your external surroundings, and it turns into something that you have potentially because of your race, right? And, you know, I think we can see a very similar sleight of hand happening again with a lot of the discussion around COVID racial disparities. So here's a description of some recent medical studies that treat race and ethnicity as biological realities and therefore mystify the economic causes of COVID inequalities. So this is from the New York Times, and they write, One criticized study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association speculated that black people have higher rates of COVID-19 because they have a higher expression of enzymes in the nose that allow viruses to enter the body to cause disease. Other scientists suggested that physical separations be stratified by, among other factors, ethnicity, erroneously treating COVID-19 risk as innate rather than structurally constructed. So... To be fair, these are really just a few examples, um, and and I do think that most people um, do not think that there's something uh, biologically about being black or about being Latino that makes you more likely to catch COVID. Of course, you know, the overwhelming scientific evidence that we have uh, from 
the last century has shown that biology, anthropology, and genealogy um, all basically concur that uh, uh, there's no real biological uh, foundation of race. However, even without these sort of biological explanations, the fixation on racial disparities during the pandemic is still leading some policymakers and commentators down some questionable paths politically. Uh, Take a look at this doctor's argument for prioritizing black people for the COVID vaccine. You can think of the vaccine almost as medical reparations. It's the 40 acres and a mule, um, but of 2021. So we really should be giving this vaccine preferentially to people of color, I do believe. You know, it doesn't have to be a competition. If we were to appropriately tax people at the top, resources at the bottom might not be so scarce. Um, And so, yes, some very affluent and very wealthy people, who are mostly white, will lose in this. But the vast majority of white people have a lot to gain. Is it unimaginable to think of a world where the Department of Health would go door to door in black neighborhoods offering the vaccine? Like, that sounds maybe crazy, but is that what we should be doing? So there are a few things that this doctor is conflating in his statement. Um, The first is that he calls for higher taxes on the rich and a better vaccine distribution model where healthcare workers go door to door to make sure everyone gets vaccinated. So that seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, We know from surveys and polling that taxing the rich is politically popular among the general public. And given how rocky the vaccine rollout has been so far, um, I'm just going to assume that plenty of people are probably going to be open to this idea of door-to-door vaccination. And he's also right that these measures would help reduce future racial disparities. However, as you can see in this segment, he's also arguing that black people should be prioritized for what is currently a limited resource as a form of compensation for past injustice. Obviously, this part is a little more controversial, and I think you would have a hard time finding widespread public support for this kind of proposal. Why would it be popular? We all need the vaccine as fast as possible, and rather than putting the onus of the slow rollout on the government and the private companies carrying out the production, these types of solutions instead ask us to compete with one another. We have at least one example so far of how allocating resources preferentially by race has played out during the pandemic. So over the summer, Oregon lawmakers established a $62 million fund to grant relief payments exclusively to, to black individuals and business owners in the state as a means of acknowledging both historical and pandemic related racial disparities. Here's a description of the program. Data shows the coronavirus pandemic has had a disproportionate impact on people of color, specifically black communities. Tuesday, Oregon's emergency board passed a $62 million allocation for the Oregon Cares Fund for Black Relief and Resiliency. It'll provide cash relief to local families and small businesses using grants given out by two nonprofits, the Black United Fund and the Contingent. Democratic Representative Akasha Lawrence Spence from Portland was one of the leading supporters of the fund. She says the move is necessary because people of color have largely been left out of COVID-19 response. So because this fund was available only to black residents, the state of Oregon was eventually sued for discrimination by two white business owners and one Mexican-American business owner. As a result, the remaining money in the fund has been frozen while the case goes to court. Now, regardless of whether you think it was right or wrong for those people to sue, it's not entirely surprising that this happened when you consider that so many people of all races are getting squeezed right now and that the majority of working people need more help. 
So just for additional context, about a month after Oregon established this particular race-targeted fund, a more general relief fund in the state ran dry. Let's take a look at this news clip. Oregon entered its third and final day of giving out emergency relief checks. All 70,000 available payments are now gone. Alec Nolan was there when the money ran out. Alec? Lee, day three of distributions was just as crowded as the first two, with many racing to be first in line. Unfortunately, not everyone in need walked away with $500. It's the difference between being able to eat every day or not. Hundreds stood in line outside Selco Credit Unions in Bend, hoping they could be one of the fortunate Oregonians to receive much-needed relief amidst the pandemic. Oregon entered its third day of emergency relief funds, and for many, that $500 was make or break. Just before noon, the state announced the fund had run out of money. The Oregon legislator released a statement claiming all 70,000 available payments had been distributed, resulting in anyone new to the line being turned away. So what's ironic about the race-targeted measures that politicians are now pushing as, quote, equity, is that right now there's actually massive public demand for more relief for all working people in the form of stimulus checks, more unemployment aid, um, eviction protections, and so on, all of which are technically race-blind but would disproportionately help Black, Latino, and Native Americans. What you don't really see are similar numbers of people calling for programs that explicitly target some racial groups, but not others. In my opinion, these are top-down schemes that sound righteous, but do nothing to actually change or end scarcity. They only propose that we distribute our limited resources in a different way, in this case, of course, according to race. Now, perhaps there's a moral argument to be made for doing that, but as the Oregon example shows, such initiatives will likely backfire. And then the other problem is when you make sweeping generalizations about which racial groups are suffering and which are not, lots of people fall through the cracks. So, for example, despite the national level data that we have that shows that blacks are twice as likely to die from COVID as whites, we also have city data that shows that in San Francisco, Asian Americans are dying from COVID at a rate about three times higher than all other groups. So, Is the answer that we just need to pay more attention to Asians or bump Asians as a group to the front of the vaccine line? No, because again, when you look at why this racial disparity exists in San Francisco, the reason is that there are lots of Asians in the Bay Area who are low income, who are uninsured, or who don't have access to social services or people who work in frontline jobs. Uh, That said, there are There are also, of course, a lot of rich and professional class Asians in the Bay Area who are not at risk. So just to end on one final example of how slippery it is to use race as a proxy for economic factors, I want to look at the headline of the article where I got this chart about COVID disparities in San Francisco. It reads, Asian Americans in San Francisco are dying at alarming rates from COVID-19. Racism is to blame. But then, when you actually go through and read the article, it's quite clear, as I said, that the major factors that have produced this disparity are mostly economic in nature, poverty, lack of access to healthcare, crowded housing, an insufficient social safety net. So, just to wrap up, if we're really concerned about COVID racial disparities and if we think it's important to eliminate them, the most surefire way to do that is to attack the problem at its economic root by investing in healthcare, housing, and social services as public goods. 
any solution for remedying disparities that doesn't challenge our current economic order, such as imposing racial means testing on finite resources, is bound to fail. As the political scientist Dean Robinson put it last year, COVID racial disparities do not reflect mysteries of human biology, but the brutal truth about health under capitalism. Yeah, I did not see those clips before the show. They're a little wild. (laughs) They are, but they show the kind of mental gymnastics that you have to employ to naturalize these categories. Mm -hmm. And they also show how much of a dead end it is, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Mm -hmm. Like, we absolutely have racial disparities in healthcare full stop outside of the coronavirus um, crisis. But we can't tackle that without addressing the things that underlie those Mm -hmm. disparities. Like, Mm -hmm. I did a segment on the Native population and the incredible toll that COVID has been taking on that population. And a lot of the doctors involved were saying, we can't send these patients home. They don't have homes with, like, potable water. Mm -hmm. So if you turn these things into this is an issue of race – you're going to, you know, slide down that slippery slope into looking for weird biological factors, for mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. that are creepy and hard to parse. Right. And you're going to silo what is literally a pandemic, something mm-hmm. that is literally harming people across the entire globe mm-hmm. into these itty-bitty race-specific issues. Mm-hmm. That and, and the pandemic will run wild. Mm-hmm. Actually, because we all need to be treated. We all need access to these things. We need systems in place so that there aren't so many comorbidities going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to add on to that, I think the first time I, we, you and I were talking about um, the article about the Oregon Cares Fund, which is the, the fund that has sort of earmarked these, these uh, grants for only black individuals and only black businesses. Um, I think your first question was, who counts as black? Or like, yeah. how do they decide who's <laughs> black? And I actually wanted to find out. So I like did a lot of research and tried to like get the application for mm-hmm. this Oregon fund. Um, because of the lawsuit, you know, the the fund has been closed, so I wasn't able to download an application. And it's like, it's really unclear how they determine who's black. Um, but I think that indicates a pretty serious problem. Um, yeah. and, like my, my, my hunch, and I don't know if this is correct, but my hunch is that on the application, you probably have to like check a box or something saying that you are black. Um, and then somebody vets the application. So they, I guess... That person determines somehow. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's that's real messy. Yeah. I mean, I always wonder this when people talk about these programs, racially targeted programs, because in my experience, my race has changed so much over the course of my life, depending on like what neighborhood or community I'm in or who right, I'm or, talking to. Right. And I remember this story when I was in college. A friend of mine was arrested for like stealing a car. She borrowed her friend's car. <laughs> Um, And it was a really nice car because her friend is, like, wealthy and Mm -hmm. had a great car from her parents. And she was pulled over. She's biracial. And when she was booked, she was booked for car theft as black. Mm -hmm. When they booked the items in her backpack, um, and this is, you know, we went to a liberal arts school, so, like, anthropology books and so forth, they booked her as white based on the books and the laptop and her schoolwork. And when she was released, she was booked as other. 
Interesting. Within the course of <laughs> like eight hours. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And this has happened to me when I was a teacher. I had to register with New York State and, you know, they fill out data about you. Mm-hmm. And I said, they they fill out your race. And I said, black. And the woman at the counter was like, no, you're not. <laughs> she was like, you, ha-, I was like, well, I'm mixed. And she's like, no, you have to pick one. You're either black or you're white. It's like that Michael Jackson song. Right, And yeah. I was like, isn't the song It Doesn't Matter if you're black or white? She, she was like, she really well, compared it to- does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she checked that I was black. She's mm-hmm. like, if you insist. And then for my skin tone, she put pale slash white. So that's how I'm registered as a teacher in That's how she New split York. the difference? <laughs> she did, yeah. yeah. She was like, and this has happened to me over and over again. My mm-hmm. medical records say different races. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a common experience for people who are kind of, you know, in between the primary racial categories. Mm-hmm. And you there are certain studies that show that over time in census data, people's race changes. Yep. So it's really hard to pin down. And if you try, whew, you're going to get into some tricky, like, eugenicist territory, I think. Right, yeah. Um, I really like W.E.B. Du Bois's formulation. He He has a famous line where he says something like, um, a, a black person is someone who has to ride Jim Crow in the South. And I think that's as good a definition for understanding race that as any other. That would make other. my father-in-law black. <laughs> he right. is Jewish. Uh-huh. He is a Jewish man <laughs> from Chicago. Right. But when he went to South Africa, he was arrested for being an undocumented mulatto. And it's because they stuck a pencil in his hair and it didn't fall out. It didn't out. fall out. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, so... Um, He's black. So yeah, I'll so this him. is so this is all to say, you know, even even these kinds of um, rubrics for assessing race that rely on, you know, uh, uh, something like a social system like Jim Jim mm-hmm. Crow are those those collapse in on themselves as well. Um, so it's yeah. just a it's clearly just a very thorny thing, and um, I definitely want to get to Ray's thoughts on all of this um, in a little bit <laughs> yeah. when we bring him on, um, but. But I, I know that you have uh, some, something else to say about both class and race reduction. Yeah, I've got, so. another, <laughs> I've got another controversial take here. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to talk about the legacy of, uh, you know, the class reductionist label and where that comes from. And I also want to start by saying that, of course, this is a charged subject for a lot of people. The legacy of racism in America is um, really extremely fraught, and it's fair to expect that people would have strong reactions to these kinds of subjects. Nevertheless, these are conversations we need to have, uh, especially because issues of racism have been roundly dismissed, minimized, or cynically exploited to the detriment of all working people. And it's no wonder, then, that calling somebody a class reductionist has become a common way to malign their politics as not sufficiently centered on race or issues that people of color face. So let's take a look at this classic class reductionist take in the following clip. I feel that we are in the midst of the most critical period in our nation, and the economic problem is probably the most serious problem confronting the Negro community. And I might say the most serious uh, problem confronting poor people generally, and I don't want to be narrow about this, talking only about the black poor in our country, 
Because I must be concerned about Puerto Ricans who are poor, Mexican Americans, American Indians, and Appalachian whites. And we are confronting a major depression uh, in the poor community. And I think the time has come to bring to bear the power of the direct action, the nonviolent direct action movement, on the basic economic conditions that we face all over the country. So I'm not going to lie to you, and I'm sorry for that bait and switch, but this segment has been kind of a long time in the making, and it's embarrassingly inspired by a fight I had on Facebook uh, with a Warren surrogate who took umbrage with the white Bernie bros supporting Sanders. She felt that his platform appealed to them because its policies would only help white men, and this is a refrain we've heard over and over again, the logic here being only white men need radical redistribution of wealth, expanded access to resources and services, and the right to organize in their workplace. This is nothing new. But what is remarkable is how swiftly it dismisses the radical economic platforms of black men and women and other radicals, socialists, and communists of color who view economic justice as the most crucial foundation for freedom. King envisioned the Poor People's Campaign as, quote, a middle ground between riots on the one hand and timid supplications for justice on the other. It centered on a set of economic demands that would grant full citizenship to the poor by addressing economic inequality and poverty. This was an extension of everything he was talking about in the last clip. Here's what the campaign was asking for. They wanted a universal job guarantee, unemployment insurance, a fair minimum wage, and education for poor adults and children. And the demands of the campaign would expand, particularly after the assassination of King. The campaign had multiracial support, and 80 delegates from organizations from the poor and minorities were invited to weigh in on the platform and respond with specific demands before pledging their support. Most did pledge their support, along with trade unions and special interest groups that focused on alleviating poverty. But the platform remained essentialist, for lack of a better word, for, with some people taking issue with the campaign's simplistic demands. But for King and others, this was deliberate. It was a way to stop economic issues from being siloed as Black-only problems, or from being dismissed as tokenistic demands. To quote King, Let's find something that is so possible, so achievable, so pure, so simple, that even the backlash can't do much to deny it. And yet something so non-token and so basic to life that even the black nationalists can't disagree with it that much. He went on to tell a crowd of supporters, quote, You are highlighting the economic issue. You are going beyond purely civil rights to the question of human rights. And I should also be clear here that the Poor People's Campaign wasn't just King. It was a coalition of leaders and organizers, some of whom had very different ideas about strategy, even if their goals and focus on economic justice were the same. And they were part of a long legacy of radicals doing this in the United States. But I'm talking about King because there's no other figure in American history where the class reductionist, race reductionist tension is more clear. King has become an empty signifier for tolerance and acceptance. The evolution of King from a fierce advocate for economic rights and re redistribution to a sanitized advocate for a vague notion of equality 
can be mapped onto a broader process where demands for redistribution and economic equality were dismissed on the basis of not doing enough to address race and replaced with demands that center around representation and interpersonal grievances. But King and others were focused on the fundamental mechanism through which race, the ideology, is made into race, the structure and material reality. And that mechanism is economic. I think the other thing that uh, we must see at this time is that many of the people who supported us in Selma, in Birmingham, were really outraged about the extremist behavior toward Negroes. But they were not at that moment, and they are not now, committed to genuine equality for Negroes. It's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee an annual income, for instance, to get rid of poverty for Negroes and all poor people. It's much easier to integrate a bus uh, than it is to make genuine integration a reality and quality education a reality in our schools. It's much easier to integrate even a public park than it is to get rid of slums. And I think we are in a new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we are getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Decency is a valid struggle, but it is not the same as the struggle for genuine equality. And that's something that still bears repeating today. This persistent denial of this part of King's legacy has been commented on quite a bit, and I urge everyone in our audience to go through the white socialist website Jacobin and look for some of those articles. But even the Poor People's Campaign, with its set of radical, economically structured demands, is now the site of revisionism. Here's some copy from the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It says, quote, The Poor People's Campaign brought attention to hunger. A few months after Resurrection City closed, food programs were launched in the 1,000 neediest counties as identified by the campaign's objectives. A supplementary food program for mothers and children was also in progress by the end of the year. Additionally, Congress appropriated $243 million to expand and revamp school lunches to feed hungry children. The rest of the site focuses on how the campaign raised awareness about key human rights issues, but doesn't mention the platform or the goal of this movement whatsoever. It makes note of several government programs targeted towards minority poverty and the expansion of means-tested welfare programs at the state and federal level, and credits the campaign with influencing these policies. But therein lies the problem. What King and countless others were asking for were ambitious, universal policies to raise the floor for all working people and guarantee dignity and security to everyone, regardless of their race or their ability to qualify for these piecemeal policies. For King, the fight for citizenship was inextricable from this economic justice, and until all poor people and working people had this, endemic racism would continue. And it didn't cost the nation one penny 
to integrate lunch counters. It didn't cost the nation one penny to guarantee the right to vote. But now we are dealing with issues that cannot be solved without the nation spending billions of dollars and undergoing a radical redistribution of economic power. It's precisely the redistribution of economic power that is at risk when these things are framed as race-specific issues. It means that that piecemeal solutions that target racial groups but do not redistribute economic power can pass for justice. And this is precisely the problem with this kind of revisionism and with the class reductionist slur in general. It's used to undermine efforts to create expansive social welfare programs that support economic justice. We saw this with the bad faith attacks on universal programs during the 2016 election, but it is a persistent feature of the kind of politics that thrives on siloing the working class into antagonistic categories, and it has been one for decades. There's also an insulting subtext, like I mentioned earlier, to the class reductionist slur, which is the implication that black people or people of color are being subject to something uniquely uneconomic, something predicated on the thoughts and feelings of others, something that is siloed, experiential, and remedied either only through targeted programs or feeling-based interventions. It's either that or some people genuinely don't think black people can think economically about what is happening to them. In the times where I've been called a class reductionist, as I said to Jen, I've also been called white, so take from that what you will. There's no doubt that racism is an issue, that interpersonal discrimination and hate are pervasive, but this alone is not what creates the utter despair and barbarism that raced people are subjected to. King and others saw that you cannot address these issues and continue to bracket them by communities or affinity. Our ideas have no race or gender, and that doesn't diminish the importance of those categories or make them inapplicable when tackling more specific sites of oppression. On the contrary, we need a universal foundation to make it possible to tackle certain issues that are raced or gendered. But we also have to resist falling into the pessimistic dead end of race reductionism for strategic and ethical reasons. I'll end with the words of Bayard Rustin, a comrade of King who was an integral force in the civil rights movement and who drafted an economic bill of rights following the assassination of of King, which was published in the New York Times in 1968. Here's a quote from a pamphlet called The Alienated, The Young Rebels Today and Why They Are Different. Quote, political alliances are not based on love. They are based on mutual interest. A class has never made its because it's lifted itself by its bootstraps. A class has never made it on its own political power alone. Politics is not based on color. It is based on philosophic ideas and economic programs. Therefore, if Negroes are going to lift themselves, they've got to find allies who stand for the same economic and social programs they are fighting for. But the reverse is also true. We cannot choose those whose economic well-being is the most pressing and succeed strategically or morally. We cannot bracket desperation by race. We can't cede ground to piecemeal solutions 
that fail to target the foundations of poverty, economic injustice, healthcare, and housing in the service of racial sensitivity. That is a path where we all lose. Black activists have understood this for a long time. In fighting for the humanity of Black people, for their human rights, they have endeavored to protect the the human rights of all people in America. These simplistic programs, as King called them, and their contemporary versions are a continuation of that core assertion behind every oppressed person's fight for justice globally. Our common humanity grants us fundamental rights and requires we fight for the fundamental rights of others. I just want to say that I really like class reductionist King. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, um, no, I, and I think it illustrates your point really well that um, – these so-called class reductionist ideas um, are, are, first of all, they're not class reductionist, but also they have a pretty long and storied tradition among black labor leaders and other activists. Um, yeah. And and to, you know, go off of your last note, your last quote from Bayard Rustin, um, maybe I shouldn't bring up Paul since he's not on the show right now, bring but up I, Paul. I will bring up Paul. <laughs> um, I just want to say, like, Paul, Paul has this great joke where he is like, I just want to collect all of these Bayard Rustin quotes and just be like, you know, put them out without any attribution and be like, hey, like, who who is this class reductionist? And then, of course, it's Bayard Rustin, you know, like, who is this yeah. white class reductionist? But of course, it's Bayard you Rustin. You could do that with so many I know. people, though. <laughs> Actually, if any if any viewers out there want to put together like a quiz, like which white class reductionist is this, please do that. And please, <laughs> please put it in the comments or share it with us. And it's always a person of color. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think that, like, there are certain people who see this and and if it's unclear to them the way that these economic programs actually lift the boats of really vulnerable populations, they can be legitimately upset, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think that that's what's happening when these things are deployed to try to fracture people's support Mm -hmm. for these kinds of universal programs. I don't want to play the clip because like, I don't want to give Hillary airtime. <laughs> but it's just like when she said, if if I break up the ba- mm-hmm. big banks tomorrow, and I will if they deserve right, it. Right, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> surprise, none of them deserved it. <laughs> right, Weird. Right. <laughs> then she says, will that end racism? And it's like, well, you can just do a Google search for like banks and then black people and see what comes up and get a pretty good idea of, of how horrible they have been including up to the financial crisis that devastated, Mm -hmm. devastated millions of Americans and disproportionately people of color Mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. We're sold this false bill of goods kind of wolf in sheep's clothing um, idea of how to tackle racial issues Mm -hmm. that distracts or denies the ability of these kinds of programs to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, All right. Well, on that note, um, I think that we have Toure with us. Uh, He's been waiting patiently. So I think we'll go ahead and bring him on out. Uh, Toure Reed is a professor of history at Illinois State University. He's the author of the book, No Alms But Opportunity. And of course, his latest book is Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, which came out last year. Toure, welcome to The Jacobin Show. You're you're no stranger to the channel, but welcome to the show. Hey, well, thanks for having me. I uh, enjoyed listening to you guys. Uh, and I, that was probably the best lead in I could have imagined. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> On that note, are you a class reductionist? <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess it depends be... on who you ask. Right? <laughs> yeah. You're going to be quoted in that quiz that Jen asked her. Right. Yeah, exactly. Make, I think. <laughs> yeah. We'll find some choice lines from Toward Freedom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so on, on the subject of the book, uh, you wrote Toward Freedom in the lead up, of course, to Bernie Sanders' uh, 2020 presidential campaign. And uh, you argue in the book that his campaign uh, sort of in, in some ways represented this kind of revival of a New Deal era sort of public goods framework. Um, now, between then and now, there have, of course, been several momentous events, uh, most notably the pandemic and the subsequent economic crash, um, and then last summer's so-called racial reckoning. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think these events have changed the political landscape between you crafting toward freedom and now. Wow, that's a lot. I know, um, yeah. We're just starting off small, of course. <laughs> Well, I'll I'll start easy. Um, it struck me, and it and I don't know that you guys would agree with this, that the summer of the Great Awakening was quite the backlash to um, the Sanders campaign. Right? Obviously, Sanders was over. There's no question about that. Uh, so I haven't been living under a rock, as some people might suggest. But rather, the zeal that that coalesced around Sanders in support of kind of social democratic politics obviously out, outlived his campaign. And it, again, struck me in real time that what the, the, the reason, one of the reasons that the mainstream media was so invested in pushing what was fundamentally a kind of race reductionist discourse with respect to the pandemic, which was something that I think Jen, you uh, discussed earlier, um, but, but also the George Floyd murder and a host of other issues was to, to displace, uh, you know, that kind of social democratic sentiment that still resonated with a lot of voters and to kind of discipline, if you will, uh, those voters to um, insist that in continuing to embrace what the mainstream Dems would have called the class reductionist discourse. And this is, you know, the way that the class reductionist framework operates and continuing to embrace a social democratic kind of discourse or demands for redistributive uh, economic policies, that those activists or voters who embraced, again, uh, you know, continue to embrace redistributive policies were in some way being disrespectful or uh, living uh, in a kind of denial about the crucial importance of racial injustices in America. And it was a fascinating thing to watch in real time because, again, in keeping with the great lead-in, um, you know, proceeded from the standard view that racial issues and economic issues exist on entirely different planes. So that was the first thing that comes to mind for me with this. Mm -hmm. Can you go into some examples of some like classic race reductionist policies or platforms, maybe recent <laughs> ones that have come out of this, but also historically? Well, um, I guess the most recent uh, publicized example of a kind of classic race reductionist policy proposal is the catch-all reparations uh, discourse, right? I mean, I don't know if that's what you had in mind since, uh, you know, right now reparations is still kind of a catchphrase, but the insistence that, again, the problems that African-Americans face are owed to a kind of trans-historical racism that exists apart from political economy uh, helped to fuel this push for reparations that really took off 
in a big way, a couple of years after Tana AC, uh, after the publication of Tana AC Coates's The mm-hmm. Case for Reparations. Uh, so that is the kind of, you know, present, omnipresent uh, example of a race reductionist set of policy proposals. I guess you can't call that a policy, though, because reparations means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So it's one that we're living with. Mm-hmm. There's the, I think, HR 40, is that what it's called? That's mm-hmm. exploring ex- exploring the possibility of reparations in a vague way. But the intention is there. It's a heart-centered approach to oppression from the Congress. I right, guess. right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to just add on to that, that um, when I think when the pandemic began, um, I it, it kind of seemed like even the libertarians had accepted that there needed to be some sort of government intervention. And at least for a moment, it seemed like uh, uh, the spell of austerity maybe not had been maybe maybe it's too strong to say that it had been broken, but that, you know, there was some more momentum toward kind of pushing uh, or implementing certain services, um, helping out people with direct cash payments. Like, I don't know when the last time we saw those was. Um, and also, uh, like, people stopped complaining about the deficit, at least for a little while. Um, so I'm wondering, like, I'm wondering if you see a possibility for keeping that momentum going in some way, or if you feel that the kind of turn toward more particularistic solutions that you were just talking about has supplanted that. Well, I guess it's okay if I'm terribly pessimistic, right? Um, <laughs> so so I, I think that uh, in order to make the case for continuing a kind of social democratic, with, with, a, with a kind of social democratic politics, um, that's a long fight, right? Because at this point, it seems that the other side really has crowded out space for this kind of class politics um, that would benefit working people, irrespective of, of race or gender or sexual orientation or fill in the blank. So I, you know, I'm pretty pessimistic about our prospects, but with, with, the, with the caveat that the needs, the real needs are still here. Right. I mean, that hasn't changed. And if anything, the real needs maybe have gotten worse or, or more um, acute. Uh, and so that requires on the part of those of us who are on the left, I think, uh, you know, commitment. Right. I mean, commitment, resilience in the face of the charge of class reductionism, among other things, which is obviously intended, as as I think one of you had, had mentioned earlier, intended to really push back against this politics is kind of politics that black Americans had actually long embraced, uh, but would benefit from disproportionately. Yeah. You know, some people have been saying that the latest uh, stimulus package is a return to Keynesianism. It's targeting lower class people, um, people who are poor and uh, middle class. It's, in some way, a gesture towards wages for housework. We'll see how that actually pans out in the end. What do you make of this? Do you think that the Democratic Party is kind of nodding its head towards these classic Keynesian Keynesian interventions? Um, And will they go further? Or is the left going to have to fight tooth and nail for some real robust um, redistributive policies? Well, I think I think you have to fight, but um, at least for the time being, I think Biden has staked out some reasonable positions as it pertains to labor. I mean, his his support for the PRO Act 
is pretty significant. Um, we'll see what happens with with the PRO Act. And likewise, mm-hmm. we'll see how what, what happens with the stimulus when all is said and done. But I think the fight over the stimulus highlights the, the major problems, right? I mean, the fact that eight Democrats or seven Democrats and an independent mm-hmm. uh, opposed, you know, increasing the minimum wage to, to $15 an hour uh, says quite a lot about the challenges within the party, right? Uh, and of course, the fact that Republicans are ardently opposed to it, despite the fact that the majority of voters, uh, and I think this is the majority across partisan lines, or at least the majority of Democratic voters and a very large plurality, if not a slim majority of Republican voters think the minimum wage should be raised. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Uh, and I think that is actually grist for the mill for people who want to push for a more, you know, egalitarian uh, form of government, right? Because mm-hmm. I think the reality is with a lot of people who are Democrats and Republicans, they're attracted to the parties for brand recognition rather than, you know, committed, rather than being committed ideologues. Um, it's what, you know, like people in your community or people you identify with identify as Republicans or Democrats and you kind of go with the flow in it. And in fact, I'll, just belabor this point. Uh, several years ago, I had an argument. Oh, uh, an argument would imply it was heated. I had a pleasant <laughs> disagreement uh, with with a Republican who was really ardently anti-Obama. This was in 2012, and what her issue was was the ACA, and she yeah. opposed the ACA because you know it was socialized medicine. And I said to mm-hmm. her, and she, you know, purportedly embraced market-based solutions to healthcare. And I said, well. If you really sincerely embrace market-based solutions to healthcare, then the ACA is your guide, right? I yeah, mean, it's, it's essentially the brainchild of the Heritage Foundation, and of course, your presidential candidate in 2012 right. implemented mm-hmm. a you know microcosmic version of the ACA uh, in his state of Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and yet because of the partisan lines, she couldn't see that for what it was, right? And by the same token, as and we can recall this um, on the other side, many Democrats who understood themselves to be progressive in 2012, you know, embraced the ACA as if it were somehow some progressive kind of politics. And since then, you know, so much of the discourse about healthcare it coalesced around making the ACA better. But again, I mean, I think that example highlights the kind of brand attachments that many voters have to, to their parties. And hence this, this disconnect between the policies that many Republicans purport to, you know, embrace, like in, increasing the minimum wage and what their actual representatives do. And for us on the left, I think that's actually a ray of hope, right? I mean, you could mm. conceivably, you know, lead with issues, uh, at least certain issues uh, to, to deepen support for these policies, which, which would be necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess I have a sort of more general uh, question now, or it's a little more abstract, but um, during the Great Awakening, as you've called it, um, a lot of corporations sort of rushed forward to proclaim their uh, opposite or to to condemn, uh, quote, structural racism or systemic racism. And, you know, obviously, in the case of the corporations, that I think 
I think they specifically chose that term because it's sort of vague enough that they could condemn, you know, structural racism uh, while also not implicating themselves in whatever that structural racism is. Um, but these are also terms that we hear a lot on the left, of course. And so I, I'm just wondering, like, can you give us a sort of working definition of what structural racism is? And then following from that, like, does it does it not follow that we need race targeted solutions to combat that structural racism? So, Jen, you're trying to get me in trouble with people. <laughs> I, I really I'm am. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm hip to your game. And I'm, I'm hip enough to your game that I, that I am not on Twitter. So, <laughs> You know, actually, Ariella and I aren't either. So yeah. I think we get in trouble way more than we actually know about. But I <laughs> we're think all, so, too. You can't <laughs> at me, though. I'm not addable. <laughs> Actually, I, I just so, want to mention quickly that somebody once yelled at Paul, who is on Twitter, about us. Ariella. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So but I like anyway. it when people complain to our manager. Right. I, I right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just send all complaints to Paul. <laughs> so I have to ask before I answer your question, and I swear I'm not like trying to to run the clock on this. But uh, what was the complaint about you guys to Paul? Or yeah. Uh, it was an, okay. So it was an episode that we did on rural America. And um, Ariel, do you remember the complaint? I think somebody just thought we weren't we weren't condemning the white rural poor enough as being racist. Like we were saying, like, hey, they live in hardship too. And I think that the complainant on com, complainee on Twitter did not like that we we didn't want to go down the path of calling them racist. Yeah, I All don't right. remember the comment. I. <laughs> I'm going to betray everyone in the audience. <laughs> the only comment that I forwarded is someone being like, can you fix the captions on your videos? Because I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. The other ones, I, I do get told I, a lot in the comments that I look tired and that I'm mispronouncing things, I think, or saying filler words. So, you know, those are those are other complaints we get. Like, well, um, send it to Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will I will just concede that I look tired because I had four hours sleep. But um I will segue into now answering your question. So just to make sure that it's quite apparent that I wasn't trying to, to run the clock. So I would submit that the appeal of constructs like structural racism and systemic racism is twofold. One, racism's real, right? There's no question about that. Uh and you can say that if there's been one positive thing that's happened over the last few to several years is that we've kind of moved beyond this silly bullshit post-racial framework. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've um, said in print and I'll say it everywhere I can uh, that I was not very high on president Obama in 2008. Uh, in fact, that I, I was a critic of Obama in, in 2008, partly because of the post-racial framework, right? Because it struck me that practically post-racialism wasn't really post-racialism. What it was, uh, because Obama remained attached to racial tropes, right? I mean, mm -hmm. underclass ideology was a major component of President Obama's post-racial vision. And underclass ideology is a way to talk about poverty that's not about political economy, but it's about culture, but the way that practitioners of underclass ideology uh, define culture is really a lot more like race than it is culture. So, you know, the post-racial framework was, which was really more post-racial, post-racism is what it was, mm 
uh, because Obama was really essentially admonishing blacks to stop complaining about racism uh, as the source of their problems, right? As a source of African-Americans overrepresentation among the nations impoverished or racial profiling or, or, or whatever. Stop talking about racism and instead focus on your behavior, right? Stop eating yeah. Popeyes for breakfast, pull up your pants and, and stop eating Popeyes for, for breakfast was literally one of, one of his spiels. Mm-hmm. Um, turn the TV off, read a book, blah, 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 right? So it's nice to see that fade at least because post-racialism in 2008 was obviously a reactionary fantasy, which was one of the reasons that I was dismayed at the time by how many other well-educated Black Americans I knew who were very excited about President Obama. And I I will tell you, just to um, anticipate the class reductionist charge that I can imagine (laughs) coming my way, I thought in 2008, and I said this to my dad, I said this to all my other Black friends and even my good white friends, am I the only Black person in America who works with disingenuous or knows disingenuous white liberals who are attached to Obama's (laughs) post-racism, you know, which is what post-racialism is, partly because it functions as a as a case against affirmative action. Right. Because I heard that a lot from mm-hmm. white liberals mm-hmm. uh, in that in that you know era. Right. And at the start at the dawn of Obamaism. So right then and there, you would think that that would you know provide me a little bit of insulation against the charge of class reductionism. But, you know, I know it won't um, because I will segue now to the problem with structural racism. <laughs> I've said in a couple of different interviews uh, that structural racism and systemic racism, and I'm going to just use structural racism to describe both of them because I think they mean the same thing, uh, would be a construct that I think is not very helpful. And I think the construct isn't very helpful, even though racism is real, right? I mean, because I have to stress that, and there's no doubt about the fact that racism is real. I think they're not helpful partly because the construct structural racism uh, is essentially wed to a kind of Patricia Baidal understanding of what racism is. And Patricia Baidal is the um, organizational psychologist who around 1970 or so had come up with the power plus prejudice definition of what racism is, which is a definition of racism that I've always thought was inadequate. At least I probably thought it was okay when I was about eight, when uh, when my third grade teacher uh, told me that black people can't be racist because racism is power plus prejudice. But then I went home and my dad told me that that was stupid. Right. So, and that was kind of perplexing, but anyway, uh, the, that framework, uh, racism is power plus prejudice, uh, is a take on the social constructiveness of race and the social constructiveness of race is right, right. Race isn't a biological category. It is a social category that, functions essentially to designate where people are in the political economy or in the social uh, hierarchy, right? That's what the social constructiveness of race basically means. But the power plus privilege take on what racism is, uh, that is an offshoot of the social constructiveness of race, is problematic first because it takes race for granted, right? It doesn't, it sidesteps what race is, which is an ideological framework, right? Or a set of ideological attachments, right? Racism would be, I would argue, the belief in biological races. Well, power plus prejudice doesn't even touch what what that is because it takes race for granted. Um, So you have that problem, which sets the stage for essentializing race. 
But the other thing is that practically uh, where the rubber meets the road, the power plus prejudice definition of what racism is really is an individualist framework. And I'm going to funnel this right into uh, structural racism. What's appealing about structural racism, at least one of the things that's appealing, besides the fact that for some, it represents an acknowledgement of the realness of racism. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But the reason that corporations like it, let's say, and their their HR shills like it, is ironically, there's nothing structural about racism as they define it. That practically what racism is within the framework of structural racism is a collection of individual attitudes, right? Of individuals who have racist attitudes, practically. Because the fixes for structural racism are what? I mean, this is this is my question to you guys, if you've been paying attention. Because I don't want to keep talking. I want to be <laughs> Um, no. So here's my question to you, and I, okay. and I have an answer, but my question to you is when you hear people talk about structural racism, if you've had to sit through, suffer through, however you want to describe it, anti-racism training in the last several months, what, what did you learn about structural racism and its, its fixes? Asking this to Jen is, is a weighty question because she <laughs> is writing a book about this. But Perfect. I would say, you know, what you see is is a kind of it's part of a it's nested in a broader liberal and I, and I don't mean politically liberal. I mean, liberal, liberal um, philosophy around how human beings interact and what makes all structures. Right. Which is that you have. Um, individuals with lived experience, they take that experience into how they treat other people. The aggregate of that creates the structure, the aggregate of their emotions, um, their affect and personal opinions creates these structures and that any interventions around racism, sexism, um, homophobia, et cetera, intervene on the individual level. And so you get people who are pushing for, you know, representation or, Let's you know, who imagine that a world of black cops is a world where every cop is great or who imagine that. And, and this isn't just even about race. You see some of this kind of like worker fetishism on the left where they think worker is an identity. It's right. it's grounded in one's experience and all of your politics flows out of this. And I think there's something redemptive there, even though I think this is wrong which is that human beings like do want to see themselves represented in their political world and in the civilization in which they live. They, and, and to naively assume that those feelings and thoughts that we carry have so much power that that's what's creating it all around us is actually a kind of nice democratic impulse, right? Like it would be great if democratic socialism succeeded and on the micro level, you had control over the institutions in your world. People want more of a say. And this kind of um, framework is based in that desire, I think. But it's extremely bad at understanding the world in which we live. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah, I'll I, throw it to Jen. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I, think, I think that is a really great way of like capturing one aspect of it. And I think to, you know, go back to your original question, Toure, like, what are we supposed to do about structural racism? 
what or what do the people who are attached to this concept of structural racism think we should do about it? And the answer so far as I can see is these kinds of like race targeted programs that you were speaking of a little while ago, reparations for one. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people who talk about structural racism bring up redlining a lot. Um, you know, so so there is the kind of affective part. I think there are also some, you know, material inequalities or historical inequalities that that get brought up for sure. Yeah, um, like wealth I, distribution. Exactly. Yeah, the racial wealth gap. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the solutions to address those so-called structural racism issues are particularist. Mm -hmm. Right. And and that's the key point, right? Mm -hmm. That going back to Ariel's excellent excellent uh, description of this, right? And that was really great, especially if it was extemporaneous. Uh, you really get it. <laughs> it was a little bit. <laughs> I t Jen and I talked about this weirdly before the show, but this is not a prepared remark. Well, it was it was very nicely done um, with minimal preparation. How about that? But but the takeaway here is that. What structural racism is practically is the bad, you know, attitudes of individuals mm -hmm. in the aggregate. Mm -hmm. And that since what and, and in fact, so people who hear these criticisms of structural racism as a result, because they they hear um, they understand racism to be again or structural racism to be the bad actors in the aggregate that for them, all racism is structural, right? So if mm -hmm. you're saying that structural racism is not the best framework, um, it's inadequate or problematic, then what they hear you saying, even though you're not, or at least I'm not and you're not, uh, there might be some people on Twitter saying this, but it's not us because we're not on Twitter. But what <laughs> they hear you saying is that there's no racism. Mm -hmm. And that's absurd. Who said that, right? I mean, in my yeah. own spiel, and every time I've done this, I've said the same thing, right? I've begun with, there's no question that racism is real, duh, mm -hmm. right? And the good thing about this moment is the mass acknowledgement of it. Um, and that's a good thing with, with a caveat, though, because then the fixes that we have for these problems, which A, are reduced simply to racism, period, and B, what racism is, is and, and structural racism is, is the bad actors in the aggregate the fixes are all individualist. Mm -hmm. And ironically, there's nothing structural about the fixes, right? I mean, you fire all the bad actors and replace them with good actors, mm -hmm. or you retrain the bad actors so they so that they're no longer bad actors. But the system remains the same. Right. The structure mm -hmm. of society remains the same. And if you can't afford you know, medical treatment, it doesn't really make a difference. Right. If you fought, if you've made sure that the doctor looks like you, if the right. doctor looks like you, but you don't have health insurance, that doctor who looks like you, unfortunately, is going to have to turn you away because mm -hmm. the doctor works at a hospital. The hospital has bills to pay. Mm -hmm. The doctor has bills to pay. Perhaps the doctor has student loan bills to pay. Right. Mm -hmm. But but that representation is not by itself going to fix you physically in this scenario and what you would actually need if, is you know national health care right the other in that specific scenario i mean the other thing though and i think jen might have touched upon this that's kind of disturbing about the structural racism framework in its moment is that there is this kind of pluralist subtext to it and in fact for many it's not a subtext 
uh, for many, it's actually in the text because there's this, you know, essentialist paradigm that's infused in structural racism. There's a presumption that all black people have the same experience. There's a presumption that all white people, right, are, are privileged within this framework. Um, there's a presumption that all Hispanics have the same experience, et cetera. And of course, that's that's absurd, right? All you have to do is look at if if you if you don't if you can't be bothered to interact with people, which I think is the easiest way to figure out that not all black people have the same experience. Like maybe talk to some, you know, but, but more than one, right? You're gonna have to go to more than one. Well, well, I know Bobby. Bobby's over. I talk to Bobby all the time at the water cooler. Not during the Someone pandemic. Someone always has the straw man black friend who just like validates everything right? they believe. You're like, who is this? And you got to branch out beyond that one guy. He's he's the black man equivalent of Florida man, apparently. Anyway, um, so if you just talk to a bunch of black people, then maybe what what would be revealed is the reality of the heterogeneity of experiences and perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if you're white, if you just imagine that black people are people, um, you know, like, like white people are people. If you're white, you probably know that white people have a variety of perspectives and experiences as well. And you can just extrapolate from that, that the same would be true for others. But the reality is for someone like um, Robin D'Angelo, let's say, or even even someone like um, Edward Benia Silva, they presume a kind of um, unitary intra-racial group interest. Mm-hmm. And that unitary, you know, intra-racial group interest is part of the story of the problem of structural racism too, right? Because it presumes mm-hmm. that it gets you back to the problem that the only barriers that Black people face are racism, period. And I'm sorry. I mean, if you if you... Think about, you know, reparations we touched upon means lots of things to lots of different people. And one of the recurring mantras, because nobody in the policy world is talking about cutting me and Ariel and anybody else who identifies as black, um, you know, a check for eight hundred or nine hundred thousand dollars. I'll take it if you want to cut it for me. How are you going to prove you're black, though? Do you have like the 23 and me to back that up? Do you have the papers you know, from the plantation that your family was owned on? Because if you're an African descended black, that's not a descendant of slaves, I don't think you'd qualify. I'm sorry. Well, and, you know, <laughs> I would I would qualify, but then there's the question of who would come up with the, the paperwork, right? Uh, and yeah. obviously old masses in the gene pool. Uh, so yeah. there's that too. So maybe I would get a diluted check. This is what um, I wonder every time I hear that. I've, I've looked at every platform I can think of for reparations because I think it's just an interesting case study in how people understand what race is mm-hmm. and how they right. frame what race is. And, you know, I've been told before in, in getting into these conversations that I have light skin privilege and I need to interrogate this before I enter into conversations around reparations to which I reply, yeah, from in some part, the slave owners who are also my, like, I am their descendant. <laughs> Should I answer for that too? You want to put me on the auction block and break down the percentages? <laughs> of, <laughs> yeah, that's how you determine how big your check is going to be, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I've, I've heard a whole range of these things. And I, I actually love engaging with the reparations argument because I think it shows 
a lot of the fantasy around race and how racecraft works in America and also how people understand economic issues. It's this no. very interesting nexus of those things to me. No, that's right. And I want to come back to, to that point, too, because the fluidity of race matters quite a bit, um, you know, even beyond the reparations framework. But but on the reparations framework and think about it practically, even even after you let's say you come up with the appropriate 23andMe uh, ancestry DNA uh, fill in the blank, you know, criteria uh, for for qualification. The next thing, of course, is we know that no one's in the policy world is talking about cutting 42 million black people a check for $900,000 or $800,000, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. at least elected officials aren't. The majority of, it's not just the case that the majority of Republicans oppose reparations, but the majority of white Democrats (laughs) oppose, you know, anything reasonably understood as reparations, right? The cash payout, I think something like 70% of white Democrats oppose a cash payout version of reparations, which is why so much of the reparation discourse is centered on rebranding. So mm-hmm. if you take something though, like one of the, the, the new, uh, which is not even new, right? It's, it's actually a rebranding, not just of reparations, but of Nixon era black entrepreneurialism. But if you take the, the calls for uh, growing the ranks of black entrepreneurs, uh, as a form of reparations, which has gained quite a bit of traction. I mean, that's the clearest expression of a class politics, and it's not a good class politics that one could imagine. Uh, what is it? Like the first year failure rate for new businesses is 20%. Mm-hmm. The five year failure rate, I think, is 50%. For Black Americans, the 18 month failure rate, I think, is 80%. It's 70 or 80%, right? The idea that growing the ranks of black entrepreneurs could function as a intra-racial trickle-down project, which is what this mm-hmm. is absurd, if only because it seems to presume that businesses are actually in the business of creating good jobs. There was a time where businesses in America created good jobs, but it's not because that's what they were in the business of doing. They created good jobs because of the National Labor Relations Act. Mm-hmm. Right. And that means that the businesses didn't create the good jobs, but the right to collective bargaining gave workers the leverage that they needed to make those jobs that had not been very good jobs, good jobs. But that era had obviously passed. Right. Um, the, the labor movement ain't what it used to be in order to ensure that black people have good jobs. The way to do that is not to grow the ranks of black entrepreneurs. Right. I I've, I don't think. The fact that your boss looks like you isn't going to ensure that your boss is solvent or disposed to pay you a living wage. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, I mean, it's entirely possible that it could even have the opposite effect, depending on the individual in question. Uh, The only way to redress that kind of income inequality would be to take a more bottom up approach. Right. Uh, And to establish as a right of citizenship, a right to a job at a living wage. Right. That could Mm -hmm. come in the form of, you know, the fight for 15 um, or more that could come in the form of a new and more robust union movement. I would say both, but that would be the way to do it. But the reason I'm belaboring this point, though, about the entrepreneurialism as a, you know, as as growing the ranks of black entrepreneurs as a form of reparations Mm -hmm. is that highlights the pluralist presumptions 
that have dominated this current discourse and it, that that and, and that are bound up in many definitions of structural racism because there is an assumption that all black people share the same interest and of course if you consider that 80% of the racial wealth gap um, or 78%, right? If there's a stickler out there, 78% of the racial wealth gap is between the richest 10% of white wage earners and the richest 10% of black wage earners. Then the easiest way to close the racial wealth gap, if that's your metric, and I don't think that that's the best metric, um, if, if that's your metric for, you know, establishing a more fair and just society. And again, I don't think that's the, the best um, approach would be to just grow the ranks of rich black people. Um, that wouldn't change the fact that for the bottom 90% of households that, that, you know, black households, that they would still be struggling to make ends meet though. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you're just focusing on representation, right. Representation matters uh, bound up with the racial wealth gap as being the real sign of the disadvantage and the only sign that matters uh, that of the disadvantaged blacks face then growing the ranks of black entrepreneurs, um, you know, providing support for more black businesses, et cetera, would be a really good way to achieve a statistical victory. That's a statistical victory. Mm-hmm. It's not a real victory, though, for the majority of black and brown people. People like my buddies, Jason, Miles, Pascal, Robert, and they said they send their regards or at least Jason, Jen sends his regards. Um, but Cedric Johnson, uh, you know, Barbara Fields, uh, my dad, uh, of course, you know, we're, I think we're all invested in the needs of black people. But the thing that distinguishes us, I think, from a lot of other people who are also invested in the needs of black people is that we're not terribly interested in, you know, enriching rich black people, right? I mean, I'm interested in growing the ranks of the black middle class. Uh, and I feel quite privileged to have grown up a middle class black person initially in a middle class black neighborhood in southwest Atlanta. Uh, and then from there, New Haven, Connecticut, which was, you know, a different kettle of fish altogether and not remotely <laughs> affirmed. But anyway, <laughs> but nevertheless, I understand how fortunate I was to have the kind of well-educated uh, parents, black parents that I had uh, who were lucky because of the fact that they were in the first wave as black boomers. They were in the first wave of African-Americans to really benefit materially from the civil rights movement at a time when the Keynesian consensus was still a thing, right? But too many of, of, of those of us today who are invested in um, you know, this, this dominant discourse centered on the racial wealth gap seem not to appreciate the fact that the game has changed profoundly, mm-hmm. you know, since 1950, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so much of this discourse seems to presume that there's actually a growing middle class in the United States, mm-hmm. for, for including a growing white middle class, like there would have been in 1950 or 1960, mm-hmm. without considering the fact that more and more whites find themselves losing ground. Yeah. Uh, and that reality means that it's actually not enough to simply fight for racial parity. A lot of a lot of the discourse today would have actually made sense, at least to a degree, in 1955, mm-hmm. right? Um, but unfortunately, simply focusing on the disparity is actually kind of a passe argument. And it's fascinating that people, it's unfortunate that people don't see that for what it is, because what that means practically, and this is, you know, a failure 
of historical imagination or whatever. But what that means practically is they're fighting a fight that most that that most blacks aren't going to benefit from, uh, even as the, the presumption is that most of us will. I, I don't doubt that something branded as reparations might be a thing, but that whatever it is that's branded as reparations would be means tested, targeted programs. And I don't doubt and charity, lots and lots of charity. Mm-hmm. And I don't doubt that that rich black people are going to become richer. So I so, I want to ask, um, um, what do you make of this argument that, you know, what, what, or what, what would you say to the people who are like, well, I want, you know, universal programs and, and ex- the expansion of public goods just as much as the next guy. Uh, but Americans are too racist to ever go for anything like that. I mean, I think that's a kind of like classic criticism that we hear time and time again. And I just want to quickly mention um, Heather McGee, who is the former president of Deimos. She has a new book out now where she sort of makes that claim. Um, let's see. Yeah, she she recently wrote an article for The New York Times, The Way Out of America's Zero Sum Thinking on Race and Wealth. And it, it uh, you know, part of it is an appeal to, again, like I say, the expansion of public goods. But her argument is that uh, white Americans sort of um, decided decided to forfeit that uh, during the civil rights period when it seemed like black Americans were going to have a share in that bounty. Um, and, and like I say before, you know, this is, this is a classic thing that we've heard about America all the time, that it's just too racist for social democracy. I heard um, this on a Freakonomics podcast like two weeks ago. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> um, so, so Tere, like, do you have any, like, what is your response to that? And, or, or is there any basis to that argument? Um, I can say that there is a basis to the argument, but I'll tell you what my response is before I get back to to the basis. Uh, My response to it is, is this, if white Americans are too racist to embrace the very kinds of policies that they would benefit from, then they're going to support reparations. Why? Right. I mean, so (laughs) that, that doesn't make any sense on its own terms. And in fact, the irony is I think it's a lot more cynical, potentially, mm-hmm. to say that if you want to grow the ranks of the black middle class, you have to have to nurture a buy-in from whites, which would mean that whites would, the best buy-in, would not be soothing their souls for, you know, sins that technically they couldn't have, have been responsible for, right? Because nobody alive today knows anybody who owned a slave in the antebellum period, right? So- you know, nobody alive today actually is responsible for that. You can say that their ancestors were. That's that's fine. But that's that ends up being a profoundly illiberal uh, framework if you hold people alive today responsible for the misdeeds of their great great grandparents or, or whatever. Right. So. So, again, I mean, the idea that you can't make the case for universal programs because white people are too racist to support programs that they would benefit from. Um, so instead, and I'm not saying that this is what Heather McGee argues, but this is what someone like Tony C. Coates had argued. So instead what you have to focus on is redistributed programs that only 13% of the population could hope to benefit from doesn't make mathematical sense at all mm-hmm. um, because you need a coalition in a democratic state to achieve those policy ends. And since black people are only 12.8% of the total population, 
and blacks are in fact overrepresented among the poor and working class, that 13% is going to lose every single time in a democracy, right? The, the element of truth, um, or I should say the basis, I believe, of what of, of that claim uh, as that, that McGee makes that in the civil rights movement or in the immediate aftermath of the civil rights movement, you could see a, a white backlash. I think the thing that's often overlooked with that claim, because there certainly is a backlash of sorts, is that it just so happens that the civil rights movement achieved its last major victory about 15, last major legislative victory. Um, the Civil Rights Act of 1968, we're going to say, is the last major legislative victory. About 15 years into deindustrialization. <laughs> um, and then it just so happens that a few or so years, several years, after that last major victory, we, we have, you know, economic crisis, right? I mean, we have stagflation. Uh, and the oil crisis, and the system's starting to fall apart. And one of the contributors to the, you know, animus, the racial animus of that time period is the inability, is is actually, I think, the collapse of the Keynesian consensus, right? It's not that white people just have these sensibilities that they're just dogmatically attached to, but that backlash in that framework um, around the civil rights movement and the worst of that backlash occurs as the system is falling apart and its ability to deliver for the masses of Americans, the masses of white Americans is starting to, you know, be, be in serious doubt, right. Um, uh, because of, of the rubber meeting the road and the like. So you got that going on as, as one of the factors, the other thing, uh, or another thing, as you move the historical meter up just a little bit. And I, I think it's, um, I think, Sometimes we're not altogether uh, clear about where this backlash, elements of this backlash are coming from, uh, is this. I mean, if you think about this moment now, uh, what we have is a kind of, what's the best way to put this? And I have to think about how to put this partly because of the Twitterverse. But if you think about this this moment that we're living through right now, um, what we have is a discourse of starkness uh, all the way around. And we the reality of the situation is that Republicans have long treated, I would say, for the most part, quite disingenuously, anti-discrimination policies as evidence of white displacement, right? Diversity, you know, affirmative action predates the defer- diversity framework, of course, the diversity framework comes about, you know, sometime after about 1978. But at this point, affirmative action and diversity are interchangeable. And again, and this is an awkward thing to say, and I, and it's awkward for me to say as a defender, and, and I would say a fairly ardent defender of affirmative action. Uh, nevertheless, that discourse of diversity is has been equated, and I'll, I'll, I'll no longer make this passive voice, conservatives had long equated affirmative action with white displacement. And the fact that affirmative action comes online in a real serious way around the time that we have this kind of economic collapse, right? The economic crisis in the 1970s only amplifies these sentiments that I was talking about. And of course, you can fast forward 
uh, as I meant to do a minute ago, our historical meter to where we are now, that hasn't changed that much, right? I mean, and in fact, in some ways at this very moment, the diversity discourse has become more crass. There is, so again, this is an awkward thing to say, so I apologize for, uh, you know, biding my time and all of the voting that's happening. I can't help myself. But it's, it's kind of hard not to hear in this very moment the reparations discourse um, in this very moment that's characterized by precarity for not just Black Americans, not just Hispanic Americans, but but also white Americans is kind of tone deaf. Mm-hmm. And I could take the kind of out. How do I say to somebody who actually has lost how do I say to a white person who's lost his or her job, uh, right, and doesn't have health insurance and is is fretting every day that he or she may, you know, contract this potentially deadly coronavirus? How do I say to them from my position as a black tenured professor, <laughs> you know, you really are benefiting from that white privilege, right? I mean, and where's my check, <laughs> right? right. Uh, because right. you're the privileged one, not me. Right. Um, and look, privilege comes in, in many forms. And that, of course, is, is baked into the privilege discourse. But at this point, it seems that the only privilege that we are committed to is racial privilege. Right. And, and maybe gender based privilege without appreciating the fact that there is this thing called class privilege out there. And that while be, while working one's way up, if you're a black person, irrespective of sex or a, a woman, irrespective of race, as you move up the income ladder, um, you know, you, you gain privilege. That doesn't mean that you don't experience racism or sexism. Of course you will, right? I mean, that that is what it is in this moment. But how you experience racism or sexism uh, plays really differently depending on your on where you are often enough in the queue. It may not prevent you from being profiled by the police if you're a black person, right? If you're a black person who's who is in a predominantly white neighborhood or whatever, uh, and the police decide that you don't belong there because you're a black person in a predominantly white neighborhood, they may not notice that you're nicely dressed and that you've got this fancy car that doesn't have the spinning rims and the light package, but you have the respectable version of this luxury SUV or a sports sedan or whatever. And the racist cop might not notice it. But when you look at the inmate population, uh, it's pretty clear what role class plays in how we experience the criminal justice system, right? Because there's most of the inmate population across racial lines is comprised of poor people, right? Mm -hmm. Poor and working class people. There are very few college graduates in prison. They're there, but there are very few of them. And there are a variety of reasons for that. But one of them is, you know, beyond the fact that middle class and certainly upper class people are a lot less likely to perpetrate perpetrate violent crimes and property theft. Right. Because those correlate. That happens. Obviously, I watch Discovery ID. So I know that <laughs> violent crimes transcend class. But, but, um, but in the aggregate, the mass wave of violent crimes. Uh, is is comprised disproportionately by young men who are poor, right, um, and and the like. So, so um, what you find though, again, is that middle class people, among other things, are a less likely to commit those kinds of crimes. 
Uh, B, they're a hell of a lot more likely to be able to afford what one of my favorite characters from The Wire would call a pay lawyer. And being able to afford competent legal representation uh, can make a huge difference in outcomes. Uh, it, it might bankrupt you, but it can actually keep you out of, out of prison. But the point is that even if black people up and down the class ladder experience racism, they don't experience it all the same way. And I said on a, on a previous Jacobin related um, or Michael Brooks uh, related interview, I referenced Oprah's handbag controversy from 2013, I think, and mm-hmm. maybe it was in Denmark. Uh, where yep. Oprah couldn't buy the $38,000 handbag. Right. Mm-hmm. And people got mad at me about that. I mean, I don't usually read chats, you know, because I don't hate myself <laughs> that much. Or maybe I do. I just don't hate myself that way. I think that's, uh, but when I was glancing through the chats, you know, people got, got some people were, were pissed off about it uh, and insisting that this was evidence of of systemic racism, right? Because black people up and down the class ladder all experience racism. If you don't think I fucking knew that, um, right. And figured that out when I was 15, let's say in the back of that, that squad car, um, (laughs) on my way home, then you're out of your mind. Uh, you know, I know that in a lived experience kind of way. And it, and in fact, it's precisely because of my own intimate knowledge with this experientially, that I appreciate the class, the the role of class Mm -hmm. in mitigating this damage. And I'm sorry, I'm going to beat this dead horse uh, just for the YouTube (laughs) and Twitter crowd. (laughs) I didn't shed a tear that Oprah couldn't buy that $38,000 handbag at that store, right? It was clearly an expression of racism. There is no question about that. Was her life impacted negatively by that, though? Right. I mean, that was a humiliation of sorts. Um, and what happened was Oprah was misidentified as a as a black person who wasn't Oprah. She was misidentified mm-hmm. as a black person who couldn't afford that handbag, which is like almost all of us. Right? Yeah, the non-Oprahs um, of the world. Um, but but again, did that prevent Oprah from living her life the rest of that day, having a good day perhaps, uh, and being able to afford a thirty eight thousand dollar handbag at a n- purchase from another retailer who wasn't a racist jerk? No, but how many people in in that era, and I'd said this previously, that handbag cost almost as much as I think the median household income for a black family of four. Mm -hmm. And what was outrageous about it, and I didn't say this in that previous interview, is that in that moment, the indignity, the racist indignity that Oprah Oprah experienced became emblematic of all of the problems Mm -hmm. of black Americans. And I'm sorry, that is not emblematic of the problems that Black Americans face, right? That's emblematic of the problems that Black multimillionaires face, is what that is. And good luck, you know, being a middle-class person uh, trying to buy a $38,000 handbag. Mortgage uh, so, your house, you, it's fine. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. No, just just to just to go off what you were saying earlier about tone deafness. I mean, I think that that is a really good way of putting it uh, because something that struck me when you know 
looking at the ongoing affirmative action debate is, you know, you've been very clear, I think, on the Jacobin channel in the past uh, about the sort of labor and New Deal roots of affirmative action. But I think that the way that it's kind of transformed at this point is, as you say, um, now it's sort of synonymous with diversity. But I think another thing is happening, which now affirmative action is sort of seen as uh, a way to diversify elite institutions, right? So like all of this affirmative action talk is concentrated, uh, is is pretty much about Ivy League universities, or like in the case of California, they had a ballot initiative uh, last year, I think it was Proposition 16, um, which was about reinstating affirmative action, both for public employment and for public education. But the way that the Democratic elite who all supported the measure came out swinging for it was again, this this rhetoric of diversity, and it was very much about, you know, we need to diversify elite institutions. And at a time when college tuition is like through the roof and nobody can afford it, um, to me, that just, again, seemed very tone deaf. It seemed, I mean, you know, as you as you've pointed out before, that's not what affirmative action was originally intended to do, diversify elite institutions, um, but also at a time of extreme economic inequality and at, you know, when it comes to colleges, like no one can afford college. It just, how can you get people to care? And in California, I just want to say, I people didn't, I mean, I don't want to say, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't say people didn't care, but that ballot measure did not pass. Um, a majority of Californians voted it down. And I want to add that I think a significant number of non-white people, Latinos and Asian Americans, and I think, uh, you know, not insignificant number of Black Californians voted it down as well. So. Well, one thing that was striking about Prop 16, and I think Prop 16 is the clearest expression of the problem that any any reparations uh, project would face is that, uh, and, and I say this as, again, one who defends affirmative action, um, I embrace it, I understand myself to be a beneficiary of it, beneficiary of it directly and indirectly through, through my parents who had opportunities uh, that they were certainly qualified for, but prior to uh, the genesis of affirmative action, because they're black people, uh, they wouldn't have had access, right, um, to to those same opportunities. But what was really kind of striking about the language in Prop 16 was that, and, and this is, this would have implications for a reparations uh, project, is that the language of of the referendum actually reflected the rights take on what affirmative action was, um, because it, if I can't remember the exact wording, but it was um, it described affirmative action as preferential treatment for minorities. And that's not really what affirmative action is. Uh, that is, again, the rights characterization of what affirmative action is. Um, preferential treatment for minorities is not exactly what affirmative action is, but it is exactly what reparations is. Right. Uh, and. And in keeping with your point, Jen, you're right. I mean, I think it was like 55 percent of whites had opposed, uh, had voted against Prop 16. Um, the majority of Asian Americans had voted against it and even a slim majority of Hispanics. And what was striking, what one other element to this story is that just in, I think it was September maybe of 2020, um, the, the California, uh, uh, governor of California uh, and the legislature had moved ahead uh, to authorize a reparations committee. So in September, they authorized a reparations committee. 
right, uh, to investigate, you know, the feasibility of reparations or whatever. And then in November, uh, a, a ballot initiative that would have reinstated affirmative action in California failed. Um, a ballot initiative that described affirmative action as preferential treatment for minorities, which was, really isn't exactly what it is. Now, I think it's true that a lot of the discourse uh, centered on affirmative action uh, coalesces around what you might describe maybe broadly as elite spaces, because it's not just Ivy League universities, though that's the star of the show, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. the, the right wing groups that challenge affirmative action really center on, you know, the Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford's of the world, right? Um, but, you know, even at, at public universities, there's a push to diversify. And at the university where I teach, uh, for example, which is hardly an elite university and has a kind of class heterogeneous student body, we are chronically engaged in diversity projects, um, you know, some better than others. I mean, I, I uh, embrace many of our diversity projects and I'm circumspect about others. But nevertheless, um, it, it's even be, it goes beyond elite institutions, even if, if they are the focus uh, the the thing that's worth noting, though, is I think a lot of people tend to not appreciate the way that affirmative action opened up opportunities for blacks, not just, you know, to become doctors and lawyers, but actually it opened up opportunities for blacks to get good jobs at the municipal level, right, to, mm-hmm. to get jobs as police officers and firemen uh, and the like. And of course, not just black and brown people, um, irrespective of sex, but women, irrespective of race. So there, there's, you know, a, a stretch of kind of blue collar jobs that opened up because of affirmative action. But the but in origin, and Jen, you alluded to this uh, previously, so I'm just going to state it explicitly. Affirmative action was conceived as a kind of anti-poverty program, right? I mean, it was bound up essentially with the war on, on poverty. And what the end game was, I should say, anti-discrimination measures uh, were, were, were conceived as anti-poverty initiatives. And in that era, the presumption of the 1960s, one of the major presumptions was that uh, among the principal impediments that blacks faced in uh, their quest for upward mobility was racial discrimination. Uh, and in fact, policymakers tended to downplay, uh, ironically, uh, they tended to downplay the disproportionate effects of automation and urban deindustrialization on blacks, but certainly were keenly aware of the impact of racial discrimination and, um, you know, what they would have described as the cultural um, impediments, the soft and hard skills set gaps uh, that that hobble blacks in their quest for upward mobility. But affirmative action did actually open up opportunities for blacks in the working class. The problem is, though, you know, one more time, that the game changed, right? If the U.S. economy still had been were characterized today by an expanding middle class, and this is the key point, so I'm going to repeat it. If the U.S. economy were today still characterized by an expanding middle class, then, you know, anti-discrimination measures would be a, a reasonable fix alone, right? Um, and as I say in Toward Freedom, had the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 68 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 been passed in 1940, we probably wouldn't have the racial disparities that we have today, right? 
But the problem is that they were passed as I, those, those important pieces of legislation were enacted, as I said a while back, you know, about 15 years at the latest into, you know, deindustrialization and then just ahead of the collapse of the Keynesian consensus. So we just have to acknowledge that the game has changed and, you know, it's a harder fight, right? Because it's a lot, it's a harder fight because what's necessary is real structural change. And I don't mean structural change, obviously, the way that Robin D'Angelo means it by way of anti-racism training, because that is not a structural change. Um, that is an individualist solution or fix to a societal, structural, systemic problem. But the key systemic problem that we face is, you know, low wages, right? De- you know, decades of depressed wages that are owed to a variety of things from the declining union movement to trade policy uh, and a host of other issues, right? Uh, so so the depressed wages and um, the housing crisis that is before us, and I mean the moderate income housing crisis that is before us, uh, that that really is likewise the result of some structural change. Like de- um, gentrification, what people call gentrification, is easily understood as white displacement of black people. And certainly if you live it, uh, if you live in a community like I did 10 years ago uh, in Northwest DC, you can feel it that way. But that's not really what it is, right? Because in many of these communities, like in Northwest DC, it's not that upscale white people are displacing, you know, black and Hispanic people. It's that upscale people (laughs) um, who can afford the property taxes (laughs) that municipalities from the Bay Area all the way uh, to Boston and D.C. um, and all all points in between that that those municipalities want to levy. Right. Um, Because they're not going to tax the businesses um, that that these rich people are courted into it. Municipalities are courting rich people to to move to these once moderate income even, um, as well as low income, majority black and brown communities. But many mm-hmm. of these now upscale gentrified communities are actually quite diverse, right? Because Northwest mm-hmm. DC is really very diverse. Um, Hyde Park is a different matter, but Hyde Park um, is really diverse actually along racial lines, but not yeah. so much along class lines, right? So, I mean, you need real structural reform in, in labor markets and housing markets. And unfortunately, anti-racism training, you know, maybe if you can afford to live there and you're black, will make a better white neighbor. I think it would make a more annoying white neighbor, though, <laughs> um, from what I've seen, right? Because so much of the, at least the anti-racism training that I've sat through, I don't know about you guys, is was worthy of, you know, Miss Morello from Everybody Hates Chris, right? I mean, if you know that character, she's, she's my my favorite go-to for this. Or the Craig character from uh, season one of Atlanta, that what the anti-racism training often enough insists upon is that we respect each other's, you know, group culture. And my God, how could 42 million Black Americans have the exact same cultural frameworks, right? Yeah. Um, and there's 200-something thousand, uh, 200-something million white Americans, how would they all have the same cultural frameworks, right? I've lived in the South, the Northeast and the Midwest, and it's all different, right? I mean, we all speak English and enjoy 
varying takes on pizza, some, <laughs> some better than others. But, but nevertheless, <laughs> there are pronounced cultural differences within these regions. And in fact, just to amplify this point, uh, this relates to something Ariel said a, a while back. One thing that I and many other black people who, you know, have, who are not native to central Illinois, where I, I have lived for about 19 years now, have been instantly struck by. Um, and for me, for moment one, but every black person I've known from Chicago who's moved down here has had the same, same experience, is how many white people in this community are part of multiracial families. Mm -hmm. uh, when I think of, and it was something I never expected, right? Because I, I certainly had my Northeast corridor biases about flyover country. I loved Chicago, but I'm about 120 miles south of Chicago. So I was like, Ugh, I don't know about living, you know, in corn country. And it's, I've enjoyed it actually. So um, turns out I was really ignorant and provincial, like many people from the New York metro area. They just don't <laughs> understand that they're provincial. But I was really stunned um, to see all of as many multiracial families as I've seen locally. I don't know if that's the best commentary on people's politics, right? Mm -hmm. Because many of these people are still conservative, but it, but it also, but it does make clear that there's a racial fluidity, yeah. right? Um, and not just in the boxes that people check, there's that, which you've touched upon, but, but, even as how people who some of us might cast as racist, it's actually kind of complicated. With yeah. Them, right. Yeah. That's absolutely true. I mean, I, I'm always struck by the oversimplified barriers that people put in place, right. Where they, they act in presuming that these are kind of naturally existing organic categories it almost sometimes seems like people are talking about different species and then generalizing within the species. Um, it's extremely creepy. But <laughs> the other thing <laughs> that I think is notable is um, in my experience, having dealt with like some pretty staunch white racists, people who are like, I am racist, you know, they don't think of it just as a matter of animus. Like I remember when I was a kid, we lived in the projects and my dad was like uh, an elected representative of one of the people who lived in the projects and they're supposed to bring complaints and issues to the housing board. And our neighbor was upset that a black man had this job. And he was like, the, this is for us. This is our benefit and you shouldn't get it. And he was like, I'm in the clan. I have a gun you know, let's settle this. My dad was like, you think I'm scared? Like I'm from Virginia. So <laughs> this was in Maine. He was like, you want to talk about, <laughs> you want to talk about the clan? Okay. Let's talk about the clan. <laughs> um, I do remember him being like, you idiot cracker. You're supposed to cover your face. <laughs> but this man, you know, is part and parcel of a group of people who see racism as an economic platform that answers and meets their needs. They also see it as a way to, you know, potentially meet high ranking people in their communities, right? Mm -hmm. Like sheriff, mayors, particularly the clan of the thirties. Mm -hmm. These things are not simply people going like, I want to be mean to some black people. When you talk to racists, they are articulating an economic program and it's one that's seg segregationist. And well, yeah, the failure to actually understand that and then meet that with broad economic programs that integrate people. It's exactly what you're talking about. Like 
if people aren't going to support universal programs because they're racist, why would they support reparations? Right. Why, are, why is that the tack we're taking? Mm-hmm. No. And, you know, I, the one year of my twenties that I wasn't in school, I had worked as a permanent temporary employee. Uh, my second job, which I liked was with the Orleans Paris sewage and water board. And as unsatisfying jobs go, that was a really enjoyable job. I love my coworkers. My first job, though, I worked for a company that did paper management for a major oil company. And while my coworkers were all individually very nice to me, um, a lot of them, you know, were people that I would have described as racist, right? Um, and 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 if only because my immediate coworkers in the in the subunit that I worked in, I think most of them had voted for David Duke. Uh, <laughs> and if you voted for David Duke, I think that qualifies you as you know some kind of a racist right i think you get a card that says i am a racist if you do i'm a card in the mail <laughs> that's right because i mean he he uh was the Reese's peanut butter cup of white supremacists blending the clan <laughs> and the neo-nazi movement uh all in one but what was interesting about these individuals um was, was there were a couple of things that were interesting about it apart from the fact that they were you know pleasant to me uh which was really frustrating because what that meant was they actually shared their views about the world with me, which pissed me off and made it very difficult to go to my job, uh, <laughs> which I needed. So I had to bite my tongue a lot, but not every single time that none of them understood themselves to be racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought that was perplexing, right? Because as we've already touched upon, if you voted for David Duke, you've just announced this, right? Um, and yet they would say, no, you know, people who... And people insist that people who voted for David Duke, the Duke supporters are racist, but we're not. They would tell me and I was like, go Mm -hmm. figure. Uh, And of course, it was always the classic exchange that I'm not a racist, but and then everything Mm -hmm. that comes out of your mouth announces that you really are. (laughs) And so so there was that. But again, that drove home to me that even in the early 1990s, when this was um, people who voted for David Duke understood that being a racist was being a bad person mm-hmm. and they disassociated themselves from their own worldview, mm-hmm. which again was really fascinating. But the other thing that, that jumped out at me was, and at this company, this was, you know, clerical work. It was uh, gendered. There were only a couple of dudes that worked there. So mainly women. And while my unit was predominantly white, I, I think most of the, the staffers were black. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me was that my white coworkers and we made, I don't know, a buck more than minimum wage or something like that. Generally speaking, at least in my subunit, did not understand themselves to be poor. Mm-hmm. And it was striking because I'd said something, this was around the 1992 presidential election about the importance of raising the minimum wage. And I referenced what we made. And I said, if you make, you know, whatever we made at the time, which again was a dollar, maybe a dollar fifty more than minimum wage, you're broke because I knew I couldn't afford anything. Um, so it's a good thing New Orleans was really cheap then. But anyway, and my white coworkers looked at me like I was crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're trying to, and literally one of them said, "Are you trying to say I'm poor?" I'm mm-hmm. saying, on this little ass money we make, we can't buy anything, so that might imply <laughs> that we're poor. Um, but interestingly enough. I I think to a person uh, when I had versions of the same exchange, with my black coworkers didn't phase them. Right. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people who are white, 
And this, I think, is a facet of what you're saying, Ariel, uh, that that whiteness is a kind of psychological insulation against poverty because we racialize poverty in this country, yeah. right? But that's not a good thing in ways that many of us who are leftists don't appreciate. They're not born understanding uh, have, with a racialized understanding of poverty. Mm-hmm. They, like we are, have been trained to see racism uh, in that way, to see poverty, view poverty through a racialized lens. And that actually highlights the work that race does on a kind of divide and conquer project, right? Um, and it's fascinating to watch people who understand themselves to be progressives co-sign this narrative by insisting that all white people are privileged, including those who don't have health insurance and make a dollar more than minimum wage or just the minimum wage, right? Yeah. And that yeah. all black people are disadvantaged, including those who can afford to buy a $38,000 handbag, assuming that the racist clerk lets them buy it, right? Yeah. But um, that's doing the devil's work, right? That's the kind of framework that tells these, you know, people who might've voted for Obama twice and then decided to vote for President Trump in 2016, uh, that 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 maybe the left doesn't care about them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a presidential candidate who is a game show host who's modeled himself on a 1980s or early 1990s racist shock comic really does care about them, even though, as Howard Stern said, if you just look at the images at Mar-a-Lago, it's really clear that he doesn't, but it makes it a lot a more compelling sell, right? Um, that for him, it makes it easy for him to sell himself or some other person like him down the line, let's say, as a champion of the little guy. When in reality, this guy who, you know, expresses actually empathy for them, for this, you know, pissed upon population in much the same mm-hmm. way that Rush Limbaugh yeah. did. In reality, this guy actually was an even bigger antagonist to their class interests, chipping away, let's say, at the NLRB uh, mm-hmm. in the way that President Trump actually did. Right. So if you're a trade unionist and care about that money you're able to make because of the union contract, Trump was way worse uh, yeah. than yeah. than Obama. And certainly it looks like he'll be substantially worse uh, than than Biden. But if you're also that trade unionist, you know that Obama screwed you and you mm-hmm. know that Obama screwed you with the ACA, right? Yep. Because if yep. the ACA had been fully implemented, the ACA would have bankrupted those great Cadillac health insurance programs that, that unionists, many unionists have. Um, and it would have undermined your livelihood, right? Just like the TPP would have yep. undermined your, yep. your livelihood. So that all sets the stage for the charlatan or the Pied Piper of racial animus or whatever uh, you want to call them to snap those people up. I get what the partisans are doing, right? What the paid staffers are doing, because that's their job, right? They want to divvy up the vote in these ways that ultimately don't challenge hegemony. But those of us who aren't paid staffers, right? Those Like anybody who's a leftist, like how could we be paid democratic staffers, let's say? Why would we co-sign? this narrative that just says to these hard scrabbled types, yeah, we don't give a shit about you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and also, also 
yeah. protect no. your privilege. It's the only thing you have. Mm-hmm. The, it makes it, it makes a white supremacist argument that says, "Listen, you may not have much, but what you do have is because of your white privilege. So all of these hardships and issues that you have faced, whatever you could scrape by, is because of white privilege." And it it's persuasive in exactly the wrong way. If people are already on your side and they're not racist, then you don't really have to employ the kind of like guilt, uh, I don't know, repentance machinery of privilege ideology. If they're not, you have wrapped up with a bow a case for why white supremacist economic policies will benefit them and are the best thing for them to invest their time in. On that note, this is, we don't have time for a lot of questions, even though somebody asked if the show could be five hours long. And now that's how I feel, (laughs) except I have to put my kids to bed. Um, I wanted to ask you about this kind of persistent, sticky idea that the New Deal was racist. And you tackle this in Towards Freedom. So if anybody wants to know more about this, I would urge you to buy this book and read it all the way through. Um, I, I've i seen this quite a bit. It's floated in some conversations about reparations. Um, people cite this as a moment where income inequality and strides towards that failed Black people, right? And these programs failed Black people. And sometimes that's nested in you know, similar criticisms of Jim Crow policy and saying we need reparations for years of this. It's not just about slavery. It's about this persistent legacy in America of leaving Black people out of these economic gains. And and that's extended towards critiques of the New Deal and its policies. So could you go into, if it's racist, answer it once and for all on air? (laughs) And what are the origins of that idea? So let's say it's complicated, but the idea that the New Deal was intrinsically racist and that black people didn't get anything out of it is weird and is something that's gained a lot of traction really only in the last five or six years. Right. Um, you could see, you know, there at, at least it gained a lot of traction um, with people on the left in the last um, several years um, since about. 2016 or maybe 2015. Um, one of the things that's, that's weird about it, I'll handle by way of a question or at least an anecdote related to a question. Uh, since, since we've had this, this disposition to insist that the New Deal was racist and that Black people didn't get anything out of it, uh, I have begun in the last couple of years asking my students or um, and anytime I do a public speaking event with a live audience that I can actually interact with, which obviously has been a little while, um, but even even some Zoom audiences, uh, when the when blacks left the Republican Party for the Democratic Party. And what's been really interesting to me in the last year or two that I've asked this question is so far, excluding people who are my former students from the mix anyway, and of course, scholars, um, I'm batting a thousand that when I ask the question, nobody gets it right. <laughs> uh, and, and the answer to the question is the 1930s, right? 1936. And the question as I frame it is in national elections. And what I've been getting from people in the last couple of years is, you know, the sixties, right. Um, they'll say the great society or Barry Goldwater, which is an interesting one. And that's not right, but I get the logic of that because, 
because then the black vote in national elections uh, by the 60s uh, moves 85 percent plus Democratic from like 70 or 75 percent plus Democratic. But I've been getting again in the 60s. I've gotten 80s. I've gotten which is weird. I even got the 20s. But nobody's saying the 1930s. And again, it makes sense in a context in which everyone insists that the New Deal was racist and that black people didn't get anything out of it. But the reality is, of course, that blacks left the party of Lincoln for the party of Roosevelt in the 1936 presidential election. Right. And Roosevelt captured 70 plus percent of the black vote in 36, whereas the Republican had captured 70 plus percent of the black vote four years earlier. Um, and the rest is is literally history from there. Um, so the reality is that blacks actually did benefit from the New Deal and black Americans understood themselves to be beneficiaries of New Deal policy. And they made that understanding plain by voting for Roosevelt and then Truman after him. Right. Uh, and what gets lost, though, I guess, I guess what happens is that in this moment, we tend to conflate sort of disproportionality with totality. And mm-hmm. while blacks were overrepresented, um, at, well, blacks certainly benefited from New Deal relief programs. Um, in some instances, they benefited uh, from New Deal relief programs in percentages greater than their share of the total population. So about 20 percent of blacks actually received welfare, New Deal welfare um, during the New Deal on average. And that is huge because blacks are about 10 percent of the total population. So that's 100 percent overrepresentation in welfare program among welfare recipients writ large. In relation to blacks needs, though, blacks did not receive relief um, equivalent to their needs, right, because blacks had much higher rates of unemployment thanks to employer discrimination and their positionality thus in the in the labor market. Um, where people tend to go wild is the longer term issues, right? Like Social Security, the Social Security Act uh, exemptions for domestic and agricultural workers who are disproportionately black. And then, of course, redlining policy. Mm-hmm. And two things that are worth saying about that, or at least at least two things that we're saying about that. Um, one is that I, I think it's worth noting that with respect to Social Security, the Social Security Act exemptions, it's really not clear at all that racism was the dominant factor in SSA exemptions. Uh, And in fact, those SSA exemptions for domestic and agricultural workers uh, lasted about 15 or so years, right? I mean, it's not 1935 to 1965. It's more like 1935 to about 1950 or 54, right? Um, and that's too long. But the reality of the situation is that the majority of people who were excluded by way of those exemptions for domestic and agricultural workers were white. And in fact, I mean, what contributes to the SSA exemptions comes down to a combination of bureaucracy, because uh, nothing like Social Security had existed before. Like my students often enough when I've talked about Social Security, the Social Security Act or shown documentaries on that, that touch upon Social Security Act, um, they imagine they don't see the connection between a Social Security card and Social Security. Right. Mm-hmm. These are like 
two unrelated things for them. Uh, and I, I think they reverse the order. I think they think that the card came before the policy. Like, well, WTF, what do you think the point of the card was? But anyway, so, so um, the impetus behind those exemptions, though, comes in at least two forms. The, the bureaucracy associated with um, you know, that, that policy, uh, the, the headaches associated with extending Social Security benefits to agricultural and domestic workers. And if you think about the work that agricultural and domestic workers did, you can appreciate the bureaucratic um, snafus there. So they really prioritized industry, uh, manufacturing, and commerce. So there are about a dozen occupations that were, when all is said and done, that were exempted from Social Security Act coverage. And a number of those occupations, Blacks were a minority, like a pronounced minority, like medical doctor, I think was among them, and maybe merchant marine, too. Um, The other piece of that story uh, is that the American Farm Bureau, the the major farm lobby at the time, resisted uh, extension of Social Security to agricultural workers and actually the farm owners themselves. They didn't want to pay the tax. Right. I mean, a big part of it is that that the profit margins were slim enough that they didn't want to pay the tax. And another component of this, um, their opposition, the the, agribusiness's opposition has to do with the fact that they provided their own private welfare system, which they used as a kind of and it was not good. um, Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, they used their own private welfare system as a as a way way to shore up, you know, employee loyalty. Right. So um, even though it's a given that, you know, in the South most white people in 1935 are racist. It's, it's a given that the discourse around it would have had a racist hue. When you look at where the rubber meets the road, the fact that 74% of the workers who were excluded from the social security act coverage by way of the exemptions for domestic and agricultural workers were white. Whereas 23% of the workers who were excluded were black tells you that it's not mainly about racism. Right. Because that would be a hell of a lot of collateral damage. Um, The other thing, though, about would be about redlining policy. So Mm -hmm. first, agribusiness really fought tooth and nail to deny that coverage for the reasons that I've talked about. And in fact, when the coverage was eventually extended to um, farm owning proprietors in 1954, they fought that, too. Right. Uh, The second thing, though, would be about redlining. And to cut to the quick on that one, since I probably took too long to tell you about the Social Security Act piece. Uh, Redlining policy took what was best business, the FHA by way of um, mortgage policy, which included discriminatory redlining practices, basically took best business practices from the real estate industry and um, infused it into and made it law. Right. And so what I'm getting at with both the exemption. So the real estate industry had already identified before there was an FHA had already identified race as and, and the racial integrity of a neighborhood. And, and of course, not even race as we think of it, right? Race, which would include what we think of as ethnicity too, like Jews, Italians, East Europeans, they're part of this mix as well as Blacks and Hispanics. But the real estate industry had already identified, going back to the teens, um, racial integrity of a neighborhood as a factor in property valuations. And when the new dealers came around to shoring up the banking industry and homeowners alike by way of the HOLC and then expanding on uh, the support that uh, the HOLC had provided to banks 
um, by way of FHA mortgage policy, which creates long-term mortgages. The new dealers brought in representatives from the real estate and banking industry to draft this legislation. So the guy who actually is, is responsible, if you will, for redlining, which denied blacks the ability to, to buy homes on these good FHA uh, 20-year mortgage um, uh, policies, uh, was a guy named Homer Hoyt, who had been the president of the National Real Estate Association, right? Um, and what I'm getting at, if you put all of this together, people around, I don't know, 2015, let's say, around the Sanders insurgency, uh, some people pointed to, and, and Tony C. Coates would, would have been among them, uh, and this would go back to his case for reparations, pointed to, you know, the discrimination in um, SSA uh, uh, policy and FHA mortgage policy is evidence of the inherent limitations of universalism. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what, what those policy problems were illustrative of was not the inherent limitations of a kind of social democratic politics because the new deal wasn't really social democracy. Right. So in 2015, you know, this new deal was racist thing gained a lot of line, gained a lot of traction as a way to push back against Sanders. Right. Um, But what was going on here is that, those exemptions that treated, that discriminated against, or at least impacted blacks disproportionately in the case of SSA uh, exemptions and discriminated against blacks institutionally by way of FHA mortgage policy reflected the New Deal's fundamental endgame of shoring up uh, or or writing a listing capitalist economy, right? Mm-hmm. Because in both cases, this is the New Deal doing what it was about, writing a capitalist, a listing capitalist economy, which meant it was doing right by capital, but doing right by capital in a way that allowed workers to benefit. And even in the case of SSA mortgage, uh, SSA SSA exemptions for agricultural and domestic workers, you're talking about maybe, again, no more than, than 19, really, I think for agricultural workers, I think it's 15 years worth of exemption. Just too many years. No question about that. It should have been zero. But ultimately, it's the government that forced that issue, right? I mean, it's it's because the Farm Bureau opposed extending uh, the, that coverage to those workers. Mm-hmm. So um, this is to say that Blacks benefited from the New Deal. They showed their support for the New Deal with their, their votes. The New Deal would have a transformative uh, impact on Black politics. It would actually push Black Americans to um, advance, and Paul Prescott writes about this, obviously, uh, in many places, but pushes Black Americans to advance what we would think of as a kind of social democratic politics, right? I mean, Black Americans in the 1930s and 40s tended to um, view racial discrimination through the lens of class exploitation. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to understand why they would, because there was no affirmative action at the time. So employers and landlords could say, uh, could could post discriminatory policies unambiguously, right? And at the workplace, what that meant practically is that um, workers could see that employers would pay blacks and whites different and, and different white ethnics too, different rates for doing the same job, right? Mm-hmm. So you could literally see the way that employers used race as a kind of divide and conquer, and of course, as a vehicle to depress the wages, not just the blacks who were, you know, on the lowest rung, 
But the presence of blacks in these fields of work who were on the lowest rung, who could do the job, had a depressing effect on the wages of whites, right? Um, the, the, and not their psychological wage, but the wage that they took home and um, paid their rent with, right? So you could literally see that it was transparent and you could see a version of the same thing in housing. So among the reasons, and there are a lot of reasons, that Black Americans you know, were transformed politically by the New Deal would be just that, right? Um, another would be the New Deal certainly pushed working people to advance the cause of working people for the good of capitalism, but also for the good of democracy. So Blacks benefit from the New Deal. It was transformative. But the discriminatory policies, many of them, not all, uh, that one would find in the New Deal, really are in, in many instances, not all, owed to the New Deal's commitment to capitalism, not to the social democratic impulses informing the New Deal. And in fact, mortgage policy, you know, encouraging Americans to be homeowners rather than building more public housing, like attractive, mm-hmm. good public housing, like on the European model, is actually a reflection of, a, of, the, of the conservative strain of New Deal liberalism, right? Because you're encouraging people to buy into a kind of petty bourgeois status as homeowners um, as part of a vehicle for demobilizing a, a quite militant working class in the, in the post-war era. But if, but if you are buying your house over 20 or 30 years, you know, you're going to spend a hell of a lot of time on some version of a rent to own policy. So what's the difference between the bank owning your house until you pay it off or, you know, having a home that's taxpayer funded, that's a great public, publicly owned, which in a democracy means you own it and all of us own it, um, having a great publicly owned home, um, so, Tere, I think what you're saying is breaking up the banks will end racism. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and I heard you guys talk about that. It's one of my favorite Hillary Clinton quips. And, and it's one of my favorite because of the irony associated yeah. with that. Right? Because mm-hmm. her husband's deregulation mm-hmm. of the banking industry in 1999, or at least his, his decision to sign into law a uh, piece of legislation drafted in part by Phil Graham, deregulating the banking industry had very much, if not everything to do with the mortgage crisis that impacted black Americans disproportionately. And yet she insisted that regulating the banking industry um, wouldn't do anything to address systemic racism. And she's right. Regulating the banking industry wouldn't do anything to address systemic racism. Um, It would have done. and, And that's one of the reasons systemic racism is a problematic framework. It, because it would have done quite a bit to bolster the prospects of those black people who were impacted disproportionately by the subprime mortgage crisis, as well as those white and brown people who were impacted by it as well. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, um, I just want to remind everybody that Ture Reed's book is Toward Freedom, The Case Against Class Reductionism. Um Tere, before you came on, uh, Ariella and I and our producer, Kale, we just all had the book sitting next to us. So we all held, we were going to embarrass you by all. Oh, yeah. I have mine here. Um, cool. Ariella has. <laughs> Can I join you? Too? Yeah. I have it here. Here it is. Oh, what? Right <laughs> well, book. Yeah. Club. But I have so book. many because my husband edited this book. Uh, that's right. So, oh, is that right? Yeah. That's, that's why. Awesome. 
he was like, ask him this, ask him this, ask him. and I was like, you are being way too specific and complicated. So you spend time in Louisiana. Yeah, yeah, go. that's where his, yep, that's where his family's from. Yeah, I love Asher it there. And I talked about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I had, I, I don't think Asher will mind me saying this. I had a wonderful experience with Asher, and I've literally recommended him to all of my family and friends oh. as, as an editor. <laughs> And he knows he that's true. That. My father has been working with Asher on a on a book yeah. uh, in the aftermath of that. So he, he knows I'm, I'm very not. excited. Asher <laughs> has read me excerpts of the book and <laughs> unsolicited, <laughs> but it's oh, really true. good. It's really good. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I, I really did enjoy the conversation that you guys were having before I, I was tapped to join you. So it was uh, you have a great chemistry. Uh, oh, and Good topical stuff. Um, by the way, Jen, I, I have to ask you before I go, what did you think of Dr. Umar? Because I, I listened to your, oh, um, yeah. I watched your, your time with Jason and Pascal. Mm -hmm. I didn't see that part. I missed that part of, of the exchange. So um, were you, had you been familiar with Dr. Umar previously? No, I, I, ha I didn't know who he was. Um, I think that Jason had played the clip really just to troll Pascal, who like <laughs> almost lost his mind. <laughs> um, it was, it was pretty crazy. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was a bit much, uh, but I mean, it was a very, so, so just to catch everybody up who's still listening, um, I went on Jason Miles podcast, which is called This is Revolution. Um, and he played, he played a clip from, I guess, I guess, would you say that this guy identifies as like a pan-Africanist or like, I don't know, he's kind yeah. of like a, I, I get, but I mean, that that's almost too gentle for like what he's actually saying, right? Which is um, uh, kind of like bizarre, like, uh, like displaced kind of black African nationalism. Uh, and uh, yeah, Jason laid the clip on us and we were all just like, uh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know which clip it, it was because I didn't mm -hmm. ask him, but I, I hope it wasn't the one where from, I think maybe this past December, mm -hmm. when he was taking applications for wifeys. <laughs> no, oh it God. wasn't that. It wasn't that one. It wasn't that one. It was the one where he was like, he was like, black people built America, like not, not white people, like not Chinese, not like Arab, not like Native American or like whatever. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. This is really making me want to watch that show. Yeah, you should. <laughs> I haven't yeah. seen it yet. I think so. I think there's a link in the chat that was posted to it. So I'll <laughs> dig through that and find it. <laughs> it. It was a really good show. Uh, and I knew it was coming because I think I connected uh, Jen and Jason mm -hmm. via email. But I didn't know the date. But I was on Facebook and I saw that it was, was live. So I was like, okay, I get to watch this now. So, <laughs> did a great yeah, you job. took a break from, from Discovery ID. Right. right. <laughs> I took a break from reading dissertations on a committee that I was on, a dissertation awards committee. So it was mm -hmm. quite a pleasant distraction. So I really, really am indebted to you, Jen, for helping to clear my mind for an hour and a half or so before I went back to reading dissertations again. Get to get to watch a show, uh, indulge in some Hotep talk. That was another <laughs> that was another theme yes. of that show. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, we have kept you for a very long time. Um, obviously, you'll have to come back at some point so we can continue uh, <laughs> this theme. Um, but thank you again, Ture. Well, thank you both, Ariella and Jen. I really appreciate the opportunity and I had a great time.
Yeah, thank you. It was really great. And for everybody who liked the show, like and subscribe on YouTube. Add us on Twitter, even though we won't see it along with Toure, because we're not on Twitter. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) He's he's been through enough. Um, Yeah, thank you so much. I loved this talk with Toure. I really would encourage everybody to read Towards Freedom. It's extremely clarifying, and it's important because there are so many distractions, some of them well-meaning, in how we actually tackle these issues. But if you believe that racism is something that fundamentally needs to change in America. This is a great place to start that conversation um, without all those wolves in sheep clothing, sheep's clothing. I uh, co-sign that. And on that note, good night, guys. Good night.